Greetings, ghost family. It is good to be back in your headphones. I know a lot of you have been wondering since December if that was going to happen, and we here at Ghost HQ have so appreciated your emails, your tweets, and your Apple podcast reviews in support of our show. Which is why, before we go any further, I am delighted to announce that Family Ghosts will be returning this fall. And not only are we going to bring you another season of stories, we're going to bring you even more of them. Season two of Family Ghosts will be 12 episodes, the first of which will arrive right here in this feed on October 10th of this year. And there's even more good news. Starting today, we're going to be publishing a bonus episode every four weeks, and you're listening to the first one of those right now. In just a minute, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Steve Fishman, an award-winning journalist who's just released an incredible new true crime podcast with our friends at Panoply called Empire on Blood. You'll hear Steve and I discuss the opportunities and pitfalls of reporting expansive, confounding, real-life stories, just like the ones we bring you here on Family Ghosts, as well as some clips from his new show. And from now, through the premiere of Season 2 of Family Ghosts this fall, we'll be introducing you to artists and stories like this that we love every month. Plus, at the end of this week's show, we'll debut a special new segment, which we're calling... Wildcard Wednesday is an opportunity for us to share amazing clips from our reporting adventures. Pieces of tape from season one that didn't fit into the final edit of a story, but were too good not to share with you, as well as sneak previews from the tape we're already in the process of gathering for season two. Thank you so much, Ghost Family, for bearing with us these last few months, for listening to and sharing our show with your friends and loved ones, and for shouting your support for our work so thoughtfully and so unequivocally. Our bosses here at Panoply heard you loud and clear, and the team and I could not be more grateful to have the opportunity to make more episodes of this show. So, we've got another favor to ask you, and that favor is that you stay tuned to this feed. We'll be checking in with you once a month for these bonus episodes from now until October 10th, and then we'll bring you brand new episodes every week for 12 weeks. So with that, let's get right to my interview with Steve Fishman the reporter and host of Empire on Blood, a brand new true crime series just released today. I once did a story um, where I, I hopped freight trains with um, two other people who were kind of weekend hobos, and it, it had to do with the, the kind of magic and romance of, of trains. Steve Fishman is the kind of reporter you imagine writing on a portable typewriter. His gentle voice belies a rail-thin frame and wild-eyed demeanor. He often wears a fedora, and he loves to interview his sources in bars. His work is never short on magic or romance. I don't know if he actually uses a typewriter, but I do know he's not afraid to follow his stories wherever they take him. I mean, we took this beautiful train ride through mangrove swamps and then fell asleep in the, in the freight car and um, landed in, in Jacksonville where the private detective for the train yard kind of walked up on us, gun drawn, which he didn't have to because we were napping in the car, <laughs> and then he took us off to, to the local jail. 
For the last seven years, Steve's been following a new story, one that actually took him back to prison, though in this case, Steve's not the one behind bars. Instead, it's Calvin Buari, who went to prison for a double murder in 1995, following a mythic career as one of the Bronx's most notorious drug lords. But Cal says he didn't shoot the two men he's in jail for murdering, which is why, 16 years into his sentence, he picked up a prison phone and called someone he thought could help him tell his side of the story, Steve Fishman. I think of your character in your reported audio pieces as kind of like in the vein of a private eye, sort of. (laughs) Um, An old-fashioned gumshoe. I think of Steve this way because the story of his investigation into whether or not Cal really did commit those murders begins much the same way as a story Steve did last year called Ponzi Supernova, a six-part retelling of the Bernie Madoff scandal, featuring, for the first time, a perspective that no other reporting on the subject could claim, Madoff himself. Towards the beginning of Ponzi Supernova, Fishman describes being at home, watching a football game with his son, when the phone rings. It's Bernie, and he wants to talk. It's a scene right out of the beginning of so many of the detective novels that I grew up reading. The private eye, reclining at his desk, stroking his chin and trying to wash away his ennui with a fifth of scotch. And then, the phone rings. One evening in 2011, I got a collect call from a New York State correctional facility. I was at home. The call came from a prison payphone. I didn't record that first conversation, but I remember it vividly. Cal raced through the evidence of what he said was his innocence, as if he were up against a stopwatch, worried I'd lose interest. I found myself thinking, what if Cal is innocent? What would it be like to have the system against you and to have to run a campaign for your freedom from a prison payphone? I can imagine feeling completely helpless. Can't you? I told him I'd look at the transcript of his 1995 trial. And with that, Steve's on the case. Tape recorder in hand and fedora, presumably, atop his head. Seven years later, the result is Empire on Blood, a seven-part story about murder, betrayal, brotherhood, and redemption. Do detective novels influence you at all? Is that at all part of your thought process in how you write or think of yourself as a character? Well, it does to the extent that I do feel very kind of plot-driven. And as you say, you know, detective novels kind of start you right at the beginning of a narrative and actually usually right in the middle of a narrative. And then it's all a matter of kind of figuring it out. So the whodunit aspect is really Uh, important to me just in terms of understanding the plot and the narrative and I feel like a story needs a kind of momentum and a kind of mystery even if it's you know as in Family Ghosts an emotional mystery that you're after. I literally have the clip you just heard saved on my phone so that I can remind myself of it as we make our way through the stories for season two of Family Ghosts. 
particularly when our team is working on scripts for what Steve accurately refers to as emotional mysteries. It can be so tempting to get lost in the thicket of a particular story's details. For example, devoting pages and pages to a description of a character's house. In my case, I wrote a frankly embarrassing soliloquy about the implications of a turret on Kayla's family home into the script for episode two of our first season, which our editor had to patiently ask me several times to cut down. What Steve's getting at here is that while details like the turret can be somewhat illuminating, they don't give a story any sort of propulsive momentum, the kind that comes from a character's actual needs and desires. So I asked Steve what he heard during that first phone call that convinced him that Cal had a story worth pursuing. What I heard through that was this combination of desperation in Cal's voice. Because by the time he called me, it had been two decades that he'd been in prison for a double homicide he claimed he didn't commit. So there was desperation in voice to ha- in his voice to have an audience I happened to be that audience, and there was simultaneously, I heard, this knowledge that he'd gained that he couldn't make any demands on me. Cal, who was this quite powerful drug dealer in the streets, who had people doing his bidding, who could beckon and and command people... I mean, he's in prison calling from a prison payphone. He has no authority in the world at this point. So he's got this kind of dynamic where he's got this huge need and he's focusing it on me. And I kind of felt like Cal wanted to shout. It's like he wanted to shout help, but couldn't. And so there was this kind of suppressed emotion. Of course, If Cal's cry for help was the only thing for Steve to hang his narrative fedora on, it wouldn't be enough of a story to fill seven episodes. I was actually surprised when Steve told me he thinks of himself as a plot-driven writer, because one of the things that stands out the most to me about Empire on Blood is the characters. It's one of the most humanistic crime stories I've ever heard. Along the way, in addition to Cal, we meet his crusading attorney, Myron Beldock, who's simultaneously battling cancer and moonlighting as a jazz singer. You want to hear me sing the song? Yeah. I'm going to sing it present to you. Uh, are you ready, everybody? A man, Gilma, a man, Gilma, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. It's not a rumor. I caught a tumor, uh-oh, uh-oh. It keeps on growing. It's really showing, uh-oh, it wants to eat my eyes, it makes me want to cry, but I'm no Mona, this carcinoma's gotta go, uh-oh. We also meet Alan Karen, the prosecutor who tried Cal's case, whose house is literally overrun with turtles. You had a lot of killings in the summer of uh, 1995, as I recall it was, and, oh no, hold it! Right. Somebody's coming down the stairs, and he's not supposed to do that. You mean from upstairs? Yeah. By himself? He's 127 years old. He has the right to do that. This is Alan Karen, a longtime prosecutor in the Bronx and a rescuer of turtles. Oh, my God. So you, do you keep them in a cage? or are they? No, no, no. He's, he's free to walk around. What's most remarkable to me about these details is that they never feel extraneous or needlessly colorful. They're all part of the larger experience Steve's trying to create. The characters in this are 
it's like theater for me. And it actually may be a flaw in my journalism, which, you know, I've, <laughs> I've done for a few decades. And it's a kind of debate at the core of journalism on whether, basically, whether you're a con man, kind of seducing and betraying, or whether your seduction is, is mutual. And I would choose the latter. I would say that one of my strengths as a journalist is a kind of gullibility. I, I, <laughs> I like the people that I, I talk to. Listen, I interviewed Son of Sam, the famous serial killer in prison, you know, 30 years after his crime spree. But I suspended disbelief. I mean, there was something about him that was compelling. And in the same way Bernie Madoff's story was compelling for me. And I feel like the way I approach the characters is with a certain, let me hear your story. Let me take you on your terms. Let me see you by the best possible light. I vividly remember the moment in Ponzi Supernova that Steve's referring to here, when he acknowledges the human connection he feels in spite of himself to Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff is the greatest financial crook in history, but his voice is familiar to me. Madoff could be the uncle I run into at bar mitzvahs. We have common roots, middle class, New York Jews, and also an interest in the Jets. Screwing up the game for you. I got it recorded. I think it's important to note what Steve's doing here. He's not sympathizing with Bernie. He's recognizing a shared humanity. And in doing so, he's allowing himself to enter the world of the story, which, by extension, allows his listeners to do the same thing. Suddenly, it's no longer a story about some criminal mastermind they can't relate to. Of course, Steve can't count on a subject's voice to stimulate affectionate sense memories every time which may be why he's hit upon another method for finding points of connection with his sources. One of my favorite uh, techniques that you use, and which you acknowledge is a technique, is you do a lot of your interviews in restaurants and <laughs> bars. Um, how did you hit upon that? Uh, what do you like about talking to people that way, and how did you hit upon that as a successful strategy for kind of drawing people out? Well, I've been, do <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time, and... Uh, you know, if you get somebody in their office, across the desk, the phone ringing, it, it's just, you know, terrible. So, you know, and I, I know you found this, too. If you get somebody in a setting in which either they're comfortable and relaxed or uncomfortable, you know, the, the emotions uh, seem to be there and more ripe. And you know, you, like like I, I mean, we're after an emotion as well as uh, a fact. You know, there's also this kind of language of food, which is totally unintentional. But we interviewed these new eyewitnesses who had come forward after 20 years. And they were, you know, emotional and shaky. And they had their whole own kind of perilous journeys. And uh, there's a moment where we're sitting at a table eating and we order dessert and... Uh, Nakia, who's really the, the chief eyewitness who turns these things around and she's just told this story about seeing this murder and she turns to the, the waitress at that moment and says, I'd like a chocolate cake with 
I need a lot of whipped cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I felt like that was weirdly punctuation to this emotional <laughs> moment. Steve told me that his bars and restaurants trick goes back to his days as a print journalist. Though now that he started reporting stories in sound, those interviews have taken on a new dimension. This Shakespearean aspect to these characters, it comes alive in the hearing in a way that it never could on the on the page. And for for me, it, it's a very apt medium because I feel like it's it's very giving. It's very warm. It's a very loving medium. Yes. And I know that all sounds slightly ridiculous because we all listen to the to the news on the on the, you know, the radio. But I think for storytelling, it, it's it's embrace of the world is is so exponentially different and for me better than what you get on print mm-hmm. that its ability to be kind of subtle and revealing for me is is fantastic i agree very much and i i think the there's a quality to hearing people talk about their lives that allows them to have a little bit more agency in the story than they might in print because you as the writer in print, you're going to select the quotes that you share. And so I, as the reader, I'm going to see those quotes and I'm going to make some decisions about who this person was. And obviously you as a responsible journalist are going to select quotes in such a way that that's a somewhat accurate impression that I'm getting. But in an audio story, not only do I know the content of the quote that you've selected, but I get to hear them say it. And one of the quotes that really sticks out for me in this that that works effectively in that way is Dwight, who is Cal's protege, who idolizes Cal so much. And and then turns on him. Yeah. You're talking to him about his sort of criminal origin story. And he says that he always felt more comfortable in the streets with all the dysfunctional people. That's the only place where he made sense to himself. I lost focus in school and I felt that the streets would be easier to move about feeling the way I felt. Being in the street was like where I belong now with the rest of the dysfunctional people. There's a kind of a pause afterwards and it, it, it almost, I don't know of course, but it almost has this sense that that's the first time he's ever realized that for himself. And it really sits there and and humanizes him in this incredibly compelling way. It's a complicated world, and I have a very complicated relationship with Dwight. As we learn very early in the story, Dwight is one of Empire on Blood's central figures, a protege of Cal's in the Bronx crack trade, whose allegiance to Cal is, as Steve alluded to, inconsistent. But Dwight's relationship with Steve is also one of the story's more interesting subplots, It's a dynamic that Steve is constantly working through in real time, and he lets the audience in on his own shifting allegiances. On the one hand, he knows Dwight is a convicted murderer. At the same time, though, Dwight speaks eloquently about the lack of options he had growing up in the Bronx, and how under different circumstances, he might have been what he refers to as a legit guy, perhaps even a journalist like Steve. Dwight and Steve's relationship, perhaps even more than Steve's dynamic with Cal, is painted throughout the podcast in shades of gray. I like Dwight, and I I sympathize with his predicament. Prison is awful, and Dwight is 
having an awful time in prison, and he's been there for a long time. And, you know, I really do hope for a, a second chance for someone like Dwight. I, I, I really do. I really hope that he earns it and can make good on it. And at the same time, Dwight as an interview subject, I mean, for me, Dwight's a poet. I mean, the things that he says, the access that he has to his internal emotions, it's fantastic. He delivers a soliloquy in which he uses the phrase, we thought we could build an empire on blood. We thought we could rise on blood. And for me, that was just chilling poetry. And yet so captivating and so telling and so revelatory of who he is that it made for a moment. And Absolutely. It, and and you capture, you know, this is thinking about Dwight in this way that really kind of zooms out and evaluates um, Dwight as an example of this whole debate between, you know, uh, should people get second chances even when they're, um, convicted of, of really horrifying things. But then you also give us a very microcosmic example of that debate for yourself because Dwight invites you to go camping with him. <laughs> I'm going off uh, camping with my, my kid. Did you, uh, you know, I always feel guilty telling you about life on the outside. Uh, that's good because it, it takes me from your head. Really? Yeah. Now I'm thinking that uh, when I get out there, maybe me and you can head up to Canada and hang out, you know what I mean? Me and you? Yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, we've heard you at that point say, and we hear you say throughout that, as you've said here, you like Dwight, but you don't necessarily know if you want to go on a camping trip with him. <sighs> yeah, it's a, it's a complicated relationship. And, you know, Dwight and I have a regular phone uh, relationship. I visited him um, a few times, maybe three or four times in prison. And, you know, one day... Fairly recently, I said to him, well, Dwight, uh, you know, who else visits you? And he said, uh, well, really just you. And, you know, that was a kind of heartbreaking moment for me because here's a guy, you know, locked away. And I'm his, I mean, I'm his friend. I'm a guy that he can imagine himself going camping with. I mentioned at the top that Steve's been following this story for seven years, and it's clear from talking to him that the experience has changed him. It's not just his conversations with Dwight. At one point in the story, Steve takes a 12-hour train ride to North Carolina with a private eye named Joe Barry, who memorably spends the trip drinking Pinot Grigio. It's all in the name of a meeting over chocolate cake with a woman you heard Steve mention earlier named Nakia who may or may not have information that could transform the entire narrative. Steve boards that train, having no idea whether anything will come of the trip. The reason for me being interested in this whole, you know, the amount of time that you're willing to spend with these people is I wonder how much that thing Dwight says about feeling most like himself among, in the streets amongst the dysfunctional people. Does that resonate with you at all as a journalist? Is that what compels you to, to take the call every time? <sighs> That's a really good question. I mean, there are moments where I, I'm kind of depressed, you know, <laughs> as a journalist. I have to start making phone calls and then 
I realize that once I start talking to people, uh, my depression lifts. And maybe there's some kind of Walter Mitty aspect where, you know, you close your eyes and you dream of a bigger life. But I think the, the, the impulse and the really fulfilling thing for me is to get out of my life and to enter the lives of other people and to kind of kind of coat myself with some, you know, personal hallucination that I can relate to everybody, that we have something in common. But it it's, you know, it's wonderful. It's one of the blessings of journalism that you get to kind of enter the world at large and, and you know, have adventures and meet people and like people beyond your scope. Family Ghosts will continue after the break. We know there's a lot going on in the news. China is still struggling to contain the coronavirus. It has been a turbulent year in politics around the world. Smoke darkens the skies above Aleppo's countryside. This fire is burning out of control, and it's just 25 miles from Canberra, Australia's But here's the thing. There are also a lot of compassionate people doing amazing things for others every day. How do you pay someone back who saved your life? I am so incredibly grateful that I need to pay it back to her, but also pay it forward to others. Hear those stories on Kind World, a podcast about how acts of kindness can transform lives. That's Kind World. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All right, Ghost Family. For this week's installment of Wild Card Wednesday, I want to play you one of my favorite moments from the interviews that Kayla Tess and I conducted for the second episode of season one of Family Ghosts, which, as you may recall, was a story we called No Brown Spots. No Brown Spots is Kayla's story of investigating her suspicion that the death of her brother Ben in a 2010 house fire wasn't an accident. Over the course of several weeks last summer, Kayla and I traveled around Northern California, interviewing people who remembered her brother. The last of those conversations was with Ben's childhood friend, Jeff. I was kind of like lost for a while. Um, I was like hopping freight trains and kind of had some drug habits that I wanted to clear up. So yeah. that's so I went down there because a friend told me about it and I went down and tried the treatment. It was pretty like mind blown and amazed. Wow. And just felt inspired. Jeff had long, thick dreadlocks stretching halfway down his back and wore a trucker hat bearing the logo of a skateboard company. He spent the last few years working at a drug addiction treatment facility in Mexico, where patients visit a shaman who administers ibogaine, a plant extract that Jeff says can break the kinds of substance abuse tendencies he thinks Ben may have been wrestling with towards the end of his life. Is that the idea behind the ibogaine treatments, that it kind of takes you to a deeper kind of psychological place where you can start to confront some of those things? Yeah, definitely. It has the power to interrupt an addiction like in the course of a night. And the psychotherapeutic aspect of it does bring a person kind of deep into themselves and to kind of reviewing oftentimes their childhood and all their experiences. And it helps people, some people come down and take it actually just to deal with like trauma or to like, you know, let go of things in the past or just for psychotherapy. Jeff's still training with the shaman at his clinic, so he's not allowed to formally treat patients. 
His current role is to play soothing music for them while they're in the midst of the treatment, which he told us can be really intense. During our interview, my eyes kept wandering to the handmade instruments Jeff had strewn around his living room, a wooden board with resonating metal prongs and rattling bottle caps, a guitar, and a small harp with the strings stretched tight against a wooden frame carved into the likeness of a woman Jeff told us was a goddess. We'd asked him all the questions we could think of about his memories of Ben, and we're just about to pack up and head for the airport. I have one other kind of weird question maybe, but um, you were mentioning, I think when we came in, that you sometimes uh, play music to the folks that are doing treatment mm -hmm. with you. Would you be willing to like play us a little bit of the music that you play? Sure. Actually, really? it's funny, because last year I went to uh, his grave and played this thing for at his grave. These are instruments from Zimbabwe uh, that I started learning, and they're traditionally like thought of as ancestral. As far as like when you play them, you commune with people who have passed away. I actually played this at his grave last year. It's called a mabira. It's cool. like spoons and bottle caps. It's beautiful. So I don't know if this picks up good or... Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lai, and Jacob Smith. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Thanks to Steve Fishman for sitting down with me to talk about Empire on Blood. You can hear all seven episodes of that show right now. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We used music during that segment, composed by Joel St. Julian, who wrote the original score for Empire on Blood. We'll be back in a month with our next bonus episode. Stay tuned, Ghost Family. And thank you, as always, for listening. Ghost Family, thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of what we do. Today, I need to ask for your help. This is something that will only take five minutes of your time. Please go to spokemedia.io slash survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. It really helps us find advertisers, which helps us keep this show in your podcast feed. That's spokemedia.io slash survey, and thank you.